Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our March 2011 issue. Let's get started. Readers are rewarded this month with two more outstanding Feshcrift articles in our series that commemorates the 50th anniversary of NCDU. Dr. Nina Skular celebrates the life and vision of Dr. Jonathan Cole, focusing on his key role in initiating what has become the new Clinical Drug Evaluation Unit meeting. She recounts with collegial admiration Dr. Cole's career as a distinguished administrator, much-loved educator, and leader in clinical psychopharmacology. Dr. Andrew Leon then provides a sweeping overview and analysis of trial design during the six-decade lifespan of psychopharmacology. From the early case series using non-standardized clinical observation to crossover design to benchmark parallel groups, double blinding, and placebo control to adaptive design and non-inferiority trials and the current challenges in the development of personalized treatment, Dr. Leon doesn't miss a beat. Milestones in U.S. drug regulation are set in the context of events, and all the many challenges such as attrition, high placebo response, fixed and flexible dose comparisons, acute and maintenance phase issues, augmentation, comparative effectiveness trials, and more are discussed in the context of evolving statistical strategies. Most importantly, amid the carefully recounted history and acknowledgement of advances in psychopharmacology, Dr. Leon asks, why has the discovery of new mechanisms of action and blockbuster interventions slowed during the past decade? His pursuit of the answers is provocative. Next, we have several articles on various aspects of schizophrenia and the use of antipsychotic medications. From John Kane and colleagues, we have a report on a fairly new drug, acenapine. Despite the availability of many drug therapies for the treatment of schizophrenia, relapse, even of treated schizophrenia, remains all too common necessitating the continued development and evaluation of new antipsychotic medications. To that end, Dr. Kane and colleagues conducted a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial to compare the efficacy of acenapine, recently approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of schizophrenia, versus placebo in preventing and delaying relapse in patients with schizophrenia. In their study, patients whose condition had remained stable for 26 weeks after their original antipsychotic medication had been replaced with acenapine were randomly assigned to either continue acenapine or switch to placebo. Patients who continued acenapine treatment experienced longer times to relapse and treatment discontinuation than did patients who received placebo, and overall incidence of relapse was lower with acenapine than with placebo. Acenapine treatment proved to be well-tolerated. 
Effective long-term treatment is critical in preventing relapse after acute treatment of schizophrenia. The efficacy, safety, and tolerability shown for acenapine in this study suggest its usefulness as a maintenance treatment for patients with schizophrenia. Next, for our March lead article, we have a fascinating systematic review of antipsychotics and cell stress. The authors examined current literature in an effort to find evidence of a relationship between oxidative cell stress and antipsychotic medication. While acknowledging that the cause of schizophrenia is multifactorial, the authors point to a recent major review that implicates oxidative cell stress as an important factor in the biological aspects of etiology and mortality in patients with schizophrenia. This recent finding raises the possibility that oxidative cell stress arising from bioactivation of antipsychotic drugs may impose an additional oxidative burden upon tissues that are already stressed and could result in cell death through apoptosis or necrosis. To further examine this issue, Dr. Lepping and colleagues conducted a systematic review to look for an association between antipsychotics and cell stress, different effects between first and second generation antipsychotics, and medication that has been shown beneficial with regard to cell stress. Their review of the literature included over 40 articles. The analysis revealed no conclusive association between direct or indirect markers of oxidative cell stress and antipsychotics. For every reviewed antipsychotic, the authors found differing research results showing a beneficial effect, a detrimental effect, or no effect. Such was true for in vivo as well as in vitro studies. The authors conclude that since the current literature has produced no conclusive results on whether antipsychotics increase or reduce cell stress, any definite claims of neuroprotection should be treated with caution. They call on researchers to conduct more prospective studies on humans in order to determine the risk for cells posed by antipsychotic medications as well as any beneficial effects the drugs may have. Another aspect of antipsychotic treatment touched on in the March issue is tardive dyskinesia, a side effect that can result from high-dose antipsychotic use or long-term antipsychotic use, as often is the case in schizophrenia. The general consensus regarding the course of tardive dyskinesia is that it is persistent or fluctuating, but gradually stabilizes or diminishes over time, with few patients showing progression. The difficulty with studying tardive dyskinesia in relation to antipsychotic treatment is that withdrawing the treatment would pose the risk of relapse. Using data from the large Cady schizophrenia trial, these next authors compared response to antipsychotics in patients with versus without tardive dyskinesia. The sample consisted of 200 patients taking one of four second-generation antipsychotics. The groups were similar in terms of time to treatment discontinuation, and there were no differences between drugs in terms of the course or severity of tardive dyskinesia. Patients with tardive dyskinesia were more severely ill at baseline, but they showed similar improvement in psychopathology compared to those without tardive dyskinesia. 
However, the authors did find that patients with tardive dyskinesia had lower neurocognitive scores at baseline and showed less improvement in cognition at six months. This finding suggests that tardive dyskinesia might be associated with severe psychopathology, but that patients are just as likely to respond to treatment except with regard to cognition. The authors conclude that Katie results only partially support the idea that tardive dyskinesia is associated with severe psychopathology, impaired cognition, and poor response to treatment. Weight gain is another onerous side effect of many antipsychotics, especially olanzapine and clozapine, and can lead to increased morbidity and mortality, noncompliance with antipsychotic treatment, and other untoward consequences. In our next selection, a group of researchers from Finland examined the addition of orlistat to clozapine or olanzapine in overweight patients. The authors conducted a four-month placebo-controlled study that was followed by a four-month open-label extension. In the extension phase, 44 patients lost a mean of 1 and 3 tenths pounds. The total mean loss for all eight months of the study was 2 and 4 tenths pounds. The results were statistically significant in men, but not in women. The weight loss in men was comparable to that seen in non-psychiatric populations taking Orlistat. Women in the long-term treatment group did experience some statistically significant lipid and metabolic changes with Orlistat, despite the absence of any effect on weight. The authors conclude that prolonged Orlistat treatment yielded no additional benefits compared to short-term treatment and that patients who don't respond within the first four months may not experience any additional benefits with continuation of the drug. Our next article takes an intriguing direction in the study of hallucinations. Although auditory verbal hallucinations occur most often in schizophrenia, they do occur along a continuum of individuals, ranging from severely psychotic patients to patients with schizotypal personality disorder to individuals who are otherwise healthy. This next group of authors raised the questions of whether auditory verbal hallucinations in psychotic and healthy individuals constitute the same phenomenon and whether specific characteristics of auditory verbal hallucinations might be important indicators of a psychotic disorder. They use the auditory hallucination subscale of the psychotic symptoms rating scales to compare auditory verbal hallucinations in 118 psychotic patients and 111 otherwise healthy individuals. They discovered that the perceived location of voices, that is, inside or outside the head, the number of voices, the volume of voices, and the personification that is, whether subjects attributed to the voices to actual persons they knew, did not distinguish between psychotic patients and healthy individuals. However, the emotional valence of the content, the frequency of the hallucinations, and the control that subjects had over their hallucinations did differ. In fact, 
the negative emotional valence of the content of the hallucinations could accurately predict the presence of a psychotic disorder in 88% of the participants. In addition, the healthy individuals in this sample experienced onset of auditory verbal hallucinations at a much younger age than did psychotic patients. The authors found both similarities and differences in auditory verbal hallucinations between psychotic patients and healthy individuals. The younger age at onset in healthy individuals may suggest a different pathophysiology in this group. The authors conclude that the high predictive value of emotional content of voices implies that inquiring after the emotional content of auditory verbal hallucinations may be a crucial step in the diagnosis of psychotic disorders in individuals hearing voices. Now we turn to several articles on mood disorders. First, Holly Schwartz and Michael Thace provide a review of the recent literature on treating acute depressive episodes in bipolar II disorder. They included 21 trials in their analysis, 19 of which were published since 2005. Therapeutic agents were rated according to the quality of evidence supporting their efficacy as treatments for bipolar II depression. Lamotrigine was considered to have mixed support. A large trial of lamotrigine for acute bipolar I depression, coupled with maintenance trials supporting lamotrigine as prophylaxis for bipolar I disorder, led to the drug's favored status in some treatment guidelines. However, the guidelines did not consider several studies that were published recently, including the only large randomized placebo-controlled trial conducted to date that focused exclusively on individuals with bipolar II depression. Lithium, antidepressants, and primapexol were judged as having preliminary support for efficacy, but quetiapine was the only agent with compelling evidence to support its efficacy. Pooled data from two large randomized controlled trials have supported its efficacy. The authors noted some limitations of this finding, namely the absence of long-term follow-up, the post-hoc nature of the data, and lack of replication. The authors conclude that quetiapine should be considered a first-line treatment and lamotrigine a second-line treatment for acute depression in bipolar II disorder. Next, we have two articles reporting results of data drawn from the Netherlands Study of Depression and Anxiety, an ongoing longitudinal cohort study examining the long-term course of depression and anxiety disorders in different healthcare settings and phases of illness. The first group of authors presents the first study to compare various psychological characteristics between chronically depressed and non-chronically depressed adults from this large sample. Very few studies have investigated the impact of psychological characteristics on chronicity of depression. Knowledge about the psychological differences between chronically and non-chronically depressed individuals may help improve treatment of chronic depression. All of the approximately 1,000 participants had a current diagnosis of DSM-IV major depressive disorder at baseline, and 31% of the sample fulfilled the criterion for chronicity. 
Evaluations were performed for the five personality domains for cognitive reactivity items such as hopelessness and rumination and for external locus of control. The chronically depressed, as compared to the non-chronically depressed individuals, reported significantly higher levels of neuroticism, external locus of control, and reactivity items of hopelessness, aggression, risk aversion, and rumination. The chronically depressed also had significantly lower levels of extroversion, agreeableness, and conscientiousness. Multivariable analyses showed significantly increased odds of chronic depression among individuals with low extroversion, high rumination, and high external locus of control. These results did not change when analyses were controlled for other clinical characteristics. These authors' findings suggest that extroversion, rumination, and external locus of control, but not neuroticism are differentiating psychological characteristics for chronicity of depression. These findings highlight the possibility for more specific interventions in the treatment of chronic depression. In our second report from the Netherlands study of depression and anxiety, the authors note that comorbidity of depressive and anxiety disorders is common and has been shown to be a consistent predictor of chronicity but that comorbidity patterns among specific depressive and anxiety disorders have not been extensively reported. This shortage of knowledge needs more attention because comorbidity greatly impacts course and prognosis. To this end, the authors use data from nearly 1,800 participants to calculate current and lifetime comorbidity rates for depressive and anxiety disorders and to examine associations of comorbidity with sociodemographic, vulnerability, and clinical characteristics. They also examine temporal sequencing of disorders. Their results showed very high rates of current and lifetime comorbidity in anxiety and depressive disorders, ranging from 63% to 81%. In terms of specific disorders, they found that comorbidity of depressive and anxiety disorders was associated with more childhood trauma and neuroticism. In more than half of the cases of comorbidity, anxiety preceded depression, and in 18%, depression preceded anxiety. The authors conclude that given the high comorbidity rates found in anxiety and depressive disorders, it is advisable to assess both disorders routinely, regardless of the primary reason for consultation. This is especially important since patients with comorbidity showed a specific vulnerability pattern. The final article in our Mood Disorders group pertains to post-traumatic stress disorder, one of the most common but least recognized anxiety disorders in primary care. These authors sought to describe the association of PTSD and trauma exposure with somatic symptoms, psychiatric comorbidity, functional impairment, and the actual treatment of PTSD in primary care. The authors used the structured clinical interview for DSM-4 to establish diagnosis of PTSD and other anxiety disorders. This was a cross-sectional criterion standard study 
that included almost a thousand consecutive primary care patients from 15 civilian primary care clinics in the United States. Measures were made of somatic symptoms, depression, anxiety, and functional impairment. 83 patients were diagnosed with PTSD. 169 patients endorsed emotional trauma but did not fulfill criteria for PTSD. The PTSD patients had markedly elevated somatic symptom rates compared to the reference group that had no PTSD or trauma exposure. Post-traumatic stress disorder was significantly associated with elevated rates of psychiatric comorbidity, pain, and impaired functioning. Patients reporting trauma but no PTSD had rates of somatic symptoms, psychiatric comorbidity, and functional impairment that were intermediate between the PTSD group and the reference group. Adjusting the analyses for depression substantially attenuated the association of PTSD and trauma with somatic symptoms, suggesting that depression may be an important mediator of relationship between PTSD and somatic symptoms. The authors point out that these results underscore the need to better detect and treat PTSD in primary care. They suggest that recognizing the frequent somatic presentation of PTSD and appreciating the salience of comorbid depression may be especially important in optimizing care in post-traumatic stress disorder. This month's special section on childhood and adolescent mental health includes four diverse articles on important mental health topics in the young. The first group of authors focuses on adolescent depression. They present data from the Treatment of SSRI-Resistant Depression in Adolescence study. In this study, over 300 subjects who had not responded to an initial trial of an SSRI were randomized to a different SSRI or venlafaxine with or without cognitive therapy for 24 weeks. The authors report long-term findings for weeks 48 and 72 while the subjects were receiving open treatment in the community. By 72 weeks, about 60% of the adolescents had achieved remission. The group that had been assigned to SSRIs had a faster decline in self-reported depressive symptoms and suicidal ideation than did those assigned to venlafaxine. Subjects with more severe depression, greater dysfunction, and alcohol or drug use at baseline were less likely to remit. Of the 130 subjects in remission after six months, 25% relapsed in the subsequent year. The authors point out that while most adolescents achieve remission, more than one-third did not, and one-fourth of those who remitted experienced a relapse. They emphasize that more effective interventions are needed for patients who do not show robust improvement early in treatment. The next article featured in our Childhood and Adolescence section looks at correlates of psychosis in children and adolescents with bipolar disorder. Subjects were drawn from two identically designed, ongoing, longitudinal, case-controlled family studies. 
All youth and family members were assessed using structured psychiatric interviews in a blinded manner. Of the 226 youth with bipolar disorder, one-third had psychotic symptoms as defined by the presence of hallucinations or delusions. Youth with bipolar disorder with psychotic symptoms had a greater number of bipolar episodes, more psychiatric hospitalizations, and higher rates of psychiatric comorbidity than bipolar youth without psychotic symptoms. A higher percentage of bipolar youth with psychosis had a family history of psychosis. Cognitive assessment showed lower processing speed and lower arithmetic scaled scores in youth with psychosis. Psychosis and bipolar disorder was associated with decreased family cohesion and poor overall global functioning. The authors point to the need for future studies to examine underlying brain structure, genetic relationship, course, and treatment response in bipolar children and adolescents with and without psychosis. In the next report from a case-controlled study out of France, the authors examined the effects of prenatal depression on newborns and one-year-olds to see if boys are at a particular risk of showing developmental problems. Using the Neonatal Behavioral Assessment Scale and the Infant-Toddler Social and Emotional Assessment, the authors compared the children of 22 mothers with prenatal depression and the children of 79 controls. The authors accounted for comorbidities like maternal anxiety and stress and excluded possible confounders such as postpartum depression and prematurity. Taken as a whole group, female plus male newborns. The control newborns had better scores on regulation of states than did children of prenatally depressed mothers. And male newborns in the control group had better scores than male newborns in the depression group on both motor skills and regulation of states. At one year, male infants in the depression group showed significantly more signs of anxiety than controls and female infants in the depression group showed more opposition-defiant aggression behaviors than controls. The results support the hypothesis that maternal prenatal depression affects boys and girls differently as early as birth, suggesting that male and female fetuses are not affected in the same way in the womb. The final article among our selections focusing on children takes a look at the literature on massage therapy for autism. Dr. Lee and colleagues present a systematic review of controlled clinical studies of massage therapy for children with autism spectrum disorders. Autism is a serious developmental disorder that often proves difficult to treat and a wide range of complementary and alternative approaches have been tried since massage therapy affects both the psychological and physiologic state of the recipient, the authors undertook to critically assess and summarize the evidence for or against the effectiveness of massage as a symptomatic treatment for autism. Numerous electronic databases were searched from time of inception of each database through March 2010, including not only familiar English databases, but also Korean, Chinese, and Japanese databases. Prospective controlled clinical studies of any type of massage therapy for autistic patients were included. 
Only six studies met the predefined inclusion criteria. One randomized trial found that massage plus conventional language therapy was superior to language therapy alone for symptom severity and communication attitude. Two randomized trials reported a significant benefit of massage for such items as sensory profile, adaptive behavior and language, and social abilities as compared with the benefits of a special education program. The fourth randomized trial showed beneficial effects of massage for social communication. Finally, two non-randomized trials suggested that massage therapy is effective. The author's review indicates that limited evidence exists for the effectiveness of massage as a symptomatic treatment of autism. Because the risk of bias was high in the included studies, and because of the limitations of the current study, firm conclusions cannot be drawn. However, more rigorous randomized controlled clinical trials seem to be warranted. To round out our selections for this month, we have two articles relating to suicide. One assessing suicidality in double-blind placebo-controlled trials of zeprazidone, and the other a comparative study of online suicide-related information in Chinese and English. Since antipsychotics are the main treatment for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, and since not too much is known about the risk of suicidality due to antipsychotic treatment, the authors in this next study evaluated in a pooled analysis the risk of treatment emergent suicidality with the second-generation antipsychotic suprazidone in placebo-controlled double-blind trials in adults and in randomized controlled trials in pediatric patients. The aim was to also identify possible suicide-related adverse events. Suicidality events were found in just over 1% of the pool of over 5,000 subjects treated with either ciprazidone or placebo in 22 trials. No cases of completed suicide occurred among these subjects. The results reveal no significant differences in treatment emergent suicidality risk in ciprazidone-treated versus placebo-treated subjects in controlled clinical trials. And now we highlight the investigation of Chinese and English suicide-related information on the Internet, the final article in our March podcast. China has experienced rapid development in the Internet market and now has the largest number of users in the world. Although researchers in the United States and Britain have investigated the suicide-related information that Internet users are able to access, no such analysis has been done for China. The Internet content available in China differs due to governmental censorship and Chinese culture, especially the belief that suicide is more of a family problem than a health problem. To address this research gap, Cheng and colleagues did a systematic search for suicide-related information using five popular search engines accessible in China. Of the sites containing information on suicide, just over 4% were pro-suicide. The percentage is lower than that found in earlier studies of English-language websites, which was about 12%. However, the anti-suicide Chinese websites gave less information on how to seek help in comparison with the anti-suicide English websites. 
There were also fewer professional and governmental mental health websites in comparison with previous findings for English language web content. The authors emphasized two points for clinicians, that they should ask about their patient's Internet usage history and that they need to be aware of the uniquely Chinese cultural attitude that treats suicide as the result of family or social problems. That's all for the March articles, but there's much, much more in the March issue. Please visit our website, psychiatrist.com, to find a free online CME activity of two of the articles we've covered here, as well as some interactive activities from our CME Institute. There are interesting letters and book reviews, as usual. And we have a very valuable and informative ASCP corner that discusses number needed to treat. Leslie Citrome thoroughly describes what it is and what it is not and explains why every clinician should know how to calculate it. Join us online for all of these pieces and more from the March issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you'll join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.